Thank you so much. It is lovely to be back, and we have been we've been extra well looked after the, this afternoon. I am slightly sugar OD'd <laughs> on pudding, but uh, it's uh, thanks to uh, everyone who's been caring for us. If you have your Bibles, which I know you all do, uh, I love the thistle of Bibles or the swipe, as we now are. Um, it turns to Romans chapter eight. And I thought this afternoon we'd have a look at the first uh, 17 verses uh, in Romans chapter 8. Some would argue the best book in the Bible, and Romans chapter 8 may be the best chapter in the Bible. But Paul writes these words uh, to the church in Rome. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. So Paul is writing uh, to the church in Rome, and this section of Romans 8 is effectively an unpacking of the first sentence. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a judicial declaration from the judge of the universe that those who are in Christ are no longer 
condemned. And in Romans 8, Paul is building on everything that he said in the previous seven chapters. And I'm sure many of you will have heard it said that when you see therefore in the Bible, you should ask yourself, well, what's that therefore? And you should look back. It's an encouragement. What, what, therefore what? What precedes this? So in Romans, you would then go back to Romans chapter 7, and you would find that either there's another therefore, or Paul's favorite little phrase is, what then? Or what then shall we say? So then you're forced back to chapter 6, and then you're back to chapter 5, and 4, and 3, and 2. When you read Romans, you actually end up just starting back at chapter 1, and following his line of logic right the whole way through. It's just one massive thesis where he's unpacking the gospel in all its fullness uh, to us. So I would encourage you, if you have a spare half an hour, uh, go home tonight, read chapters 1 to 7, then read all of chapter 8 and just keep going. Okay, there's a few things you could do uh, which would be better than reading Romans. But he says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is present tense. Those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer condemned by God. You know, it's such a familiar phrase to us. Romans 8, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. And familiarity can sometimes cause us to miss the significance. We are free. We are not condemned. It's a position of liberty. And why is this possible? He goes on to say, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, how? What's going on? What's the law of the Spirit of life that's freed us from the law of sin and death? Well, we know the law of God exposes sin. Paul unpacks this earlier in Romans. Exposes our rebellion. And then it rightly condemns us. It passes sentence. Tells us what the judgment should be. But the Christian, who Paul is talking to here, we are liberated by another law. Or so it seems. But what is this law of the spirit of life? Well, I think it's another way of Paul has for describing the gospel. He says we are liberated, we are set free by the gospel. Because he says back in Romans 1 that this is the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes. And he's not ashamed of the gospel. And to live, in a, li- to live a life where no condemnation, or to put it another way, to live a life of freedom, of Christian freedom, I think it's a concept that we can struggle with from time to time. To live free is something that's quite tricky because Paul's going to go on to explain that actually, as when we weren't Christians, we were in bondage. And sometimes getting our head around freedom can be be difficult. Because while we may know the saving power of the gospel, we can struggle from time to time because Sometimes we can struggle just to accept it. Because we look at our lives, and it's regardless of how long you've been a Christian, you know, we look at our lives and sometimes we can feel like we're making such slow progress. 
you're like, oh my goodness. Have I, have I made any progress this year or this last five years? And it can be discouraging. We can become paralyzed by, by guilt. When we look and we think, oh, we have so much more. I need so much more sanctification. Or we can struggle with freedom almost as a form of pride. We somehow think that our freedom is dependent on the things we do. And we can, take, we can build self-confidence. With, oh, I'm free because of what I have done or, the, or what I do. And that doesn't work very well either. Or, to be quite blunt about it, simply we can fail to strive to live it. We can just neglect it and quietly accept bondage to sin. So what I'd like us to do this afternoon is have a look at the rest of this chapter using four headings, which I hope will help us address some of the struggles that we might have had or do have or may have uh, in the future. And the first is this, freedom attained. Paul is crystal clear. We could not attain our freedom for ourselves. God attained it for us through Christ. We could not attain it because we could not keep the law. Because our flesh is weak and sinful. And throughout the passage, Paul repeatedly compares flesh with spirit. Earlier in Romans, he'll compare grace and law. And flesh here is not a physical state, it's a spiritual state. And he says in verse 7 that those in the flesh cannot submit to God's law. They're they're rebels. In verse 8, he says they, they cannot please God. They're in a doomed position, impossible, utterly helpless situation. But God is the God of the impossible. He works the miracle of salvation. And he does this, and Paul unpacks this, by sending his son into the world, fully human, fully divine, but without sin. And Christ fully obeys the law by living the life that you and I could not. And on the cross, he takes in his flesh the condemnation of God, and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So Paul can declare for himself and for us, no condemnation for you and me because Christ was fully condemned on the cross. And we need to constantly, I think, remind ourselves of these truths. Because our hearts, our tendency is to always slip towards trying to earn our own salvation. That's, our, if our, we have a, that's the slope we have a tendency to try and slip down. And therefore, we can sometimes think that our standing before God is determined by things we do. We can believe we're not condemned in our head, but we might not always live it out. For example, my status before God is not determined by how much Bible I read, the length of my prayers, my success in dealing with sin in my life, the quality of my parenting, my personal evangelism efforts, or how I was feeling during worship. And the temptation is, when these things are all going really well, we're like, yes, no condemnation. But when they're not going so well, 
Maybe in our hearts we're thinking, oh, there's maybe a wee bit of condemnation. And that's not true. You know, the thief on the cross, I love the thief on the cross. After his conversation with Jesus, he never read his Bible. He probably had a very short prayer life. He didn't do any evangelism. And he didn't have a happy, tingly feeling down his spine during a worship song. And today, he stands not condemned. His freedom was attained for him, not by him, just like us. Alistair Begg uh, tells a, he sort of does an imaginative enactment, a reenactment of the thief on the cross arriving in heaven. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I did the rounds on YouTube a wee while back. And he has this conversation between the thief and an angel. And the angel says to the thief, well, why should you get into heaven? Do you know anything about justification? What's your doctrine of scripture like? You know, do, you, do you know any theology? And the thief's just like, no, no idea. And the angel says, let me get my supervisor. And the supervising angel says to him, why should you get into heaven? And the thief's answer is this, the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's the only basis for our salvation. The man on the middle cross. It's the work of Christ that saves us. It's the work of Christ which determines our legal status, that we are not condemned. Our freedom is given to us. It's attained for us, not by us. Second point then to help us with this, freedom enacted, verses 4 to 8. So having just said that the things we do don't attain our freedom, Paul is going to go on to show that having attained our freedom, we actually have to act it out. We're to live it. He says in verse 4 that the righteous requirement of the law is to be fulfilled in us. And what he's talking about there is he's not talking about the, the laws of the Old Testament to do with cleanliness, the, the ceremonial laws. He's talking about the moral law. He says we are to be holy. Christians are to be holy. We are set free to be holy, to live lives as evidence of the freedom that we now possess. Look at what he says. We now, he says we now walk active. We're active in our freedom. We're not passive. And we walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. We've been transformed. And having been given the Spirit of God, having received a new heart, having been born again, we now have the ability to exercise our faith and our obedience and please God. How do we do this? He uses this really great little phrase. He says we're to set our mind. We set our mind on the things of the flesh. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the fling, things of the flesh. They set their minds on the, sorry, on the things of the spirit, not the things of the flesh. Now, what is it to set our minds on the things of the spirit? It's not about going off to some sort of retreat you know, we sit under a tree without our socks and shoes on and contemplate spiritual things. 
Although sometimes I think in our busy lives, a little bit of solitude and contemplation maybe wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. But to set your mind on the Spirit, it's more about how we live, and it begins in our mind. I do Duke of Edinburgh Award with the kids in school, and one of the key things we do is we teach them how to navigate. So we teach them how to use a compass. And when you use a compass, you decide where you're going, and you set your compass. You turn the dial, you get your bearing, and then you follow your compass. You do not deviate from where it's telling you to go. And we do that with our mind. We have to set our mind. We set our mind on Christ. It's an active thing we do. We decide, there's Christ. I'm going to view the world through a spiritual lens. That is the direction I am traveling. But when I'm out teaching the kids, what I tell them to do is, well, you have to frequently check that you're on course. You have to check. Have we, maybe have we gone astray? Maybe there was an obstacle in the way or we got distracted by something and we may have to correct course. And that's quite hard to do on your own when you're navigating because sometimes you're not aware. It's better if you've got others with you who can help you set the direction of travel. And we need to always bear in mind when we're reading Uh, letters like Romans, that Paul is writing to the church. He's not writing to individuals. He's writing to a corporate body. And one of the things the corporate body is able to do, one of the things we can help one another with, is help each other to make sure that we are setting our minds on Christ. We can help one another to stay the course. We can help one another to make sure we're on the right path. And if we, can, if we see someone veering in the wrong direction, we can gently correct them. And it's much easier to correct course soon rather than later. It's much harder if you're six miles off course than six meters off course. Because there are distractions all around us. You know, Paul compares us to the pull of the flesh. Temptations which can take us off course. And they seem so attractive why they're temptations. Nobody was attracted by something which they didn't like the look of. But they're ultimately deceptive. Paul describes it verse 6, it's the way of flesh and it leads to death. I wonder, and I think this for myself, how many of us can look back and think, if only I could have seen what the consequences of those actions or those words would have been. Would I have made that decision? Would I have gone down that path of temptation? Well, Paul here is telling us, and he's telling us, those paths lead ultimately to death. But if we stay the course, if we set our minds on the Spirit, then it leads to life and peace. That's the outcome of setting our mind on the Spirit. The outcome of keeping our lives pointing towards Jesus life and peace. The life and peace, however, is not determined by your circumstances. I said this morning I've been reading some uh, stuff from Christians in Eastern Europe. Uh, We get the open doors prayer 
uh, guide through every month. It tells you about Christians in China, North Korea, Nigeria. One woman had spent six months in prison uh, for her faith. And she described it as a good time. Her circumstances were horrendous, but she had her mind set on the Spirit, on Christ, and in the midst of absolutely shocking situation, she knew life and she knew peace. The world does not understand this. Because these are things of the Spirit and not things of the flesh. Paul continues, verse 9 to 13, freedom empowered. Freedom empowered. He says, you however are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he goes on, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. We do not live this life. We do not exercise our faith and our obedience to live out this freedom on our own. We can't. I can't be obedient on my own. I could try. I might last till about half past eight in the morning if I get up at eight. We can't do it on our own strength. To summarize verse 10 and 11, our ability to enact our freedom, to live lives which are holy, is only possible, only possible because the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. This mortal body, corrupted by sin, now has ultimate life, an ultimate power living inside it. Stop for a moment and think. Because we gloss over this, I think, far too quickly. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, if you're a believer, actually lives inside you. Actually lives inside you. He gives you life and he offers you the power to live the life that God wants you to live. How easy do we forget that? The power that is available to us. Yet somehow we're, we're sometimes I think live lives a little bit like, you know the Flintstone cars? You know they propel themselves along Maybe the cars they have in the toddler groups. Or more like my, I grew up around motorbikes. Anybody get motorbikes? No motorcycles? Um, can shorten your life expectancy considerably, I believe. But, but my, my dad had motorbikes. And at one point, he had a Kawasaki ZXR900, which was the fastest road bike in the world at the time. It won the Isle of Man TT production race. This was a thing of beauty. Scarily fast. And it used to take me out, much to my mum's distress. Better not, better she didn't know. And this was so powerful and so fast. But if I had seen him 
coming up the road, move, like, you're propelling it along as if he's on a wee balance bike, making motorbike noises with his lips. We would have th- I would have thought he was mad. We would have said, why don't you turn the ignition on? It can do not to 60 in about three and a half seconds. Why are you pushing it along with your feet? But that's sometimes what we do as Christians, is it not? We, like propel our, we try and propel ourselves through the Christian life on our own strength, forgetting the power that is in us from God. It's not our power, it's His power. It's the power which brought the universe into being. It's the power which created a multitude of stars and the oceans and the mountains. But ultimately, as Paul says, it is the power that raised Christ from the dead. That's ours. That is ours to live out and exercise Christian freedom. And we're to use this to be holy. One key aspect of holiness which Paul unpacks here again in verses 12 and 13 is that we're to use the power of the Spirit to defeat sin. Look at what he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors or sisters. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You know, there's a really common phrase which I hear. I've even used it myself. I may be in good company, but others have used it as well. The phrase is this, it's just the way I am. I just can't help myself. That's just the personality God has given me. That's just how God made me. Deal with it. It's often, we often use it as an excuse sometimes just to be downright rude to people. But that's, that's not how it's supposed to be for us as Christians. We do come to Christ just as we are. Sinful, broken human beings. But from the point of your conversion, and my conversion, the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. And as soon as he moves in, he has a purpose. And his purpose is to make you and me more like Jesus. We're not supposed to stay the same. That's not what's supposed to happen. There are things in our lives, habits, personality traits, attitudes and they need to be cleared out verse 12 says that we're not to be in debt to our flesh or to we're not to live according to it because we're free so don't live like someone who's still in prison why put ourselves back in bondage why walk the path of death when we know the path of life and paul uses a a real serious phrase for how we should treat sin. He says that we are to put it to death. The old authorized version uh, uses the phrase, the mortification of sin. It's a great phrase. Um, In fact, there's a great book, I think John Owen wrote a great book on it. We're to put sin to death. That's how seriously we're to treat it. It's not a wee pet that we can keep, feed it, stroke it but this is by the power of the holy spirit we're to kill it and this is an active process 
You know, it's, it's not like one of those home improvement programs, you know, where the, the family go off on holiday for a week and a team of joiners, now electricians, come in and do up their house. Okay, that's, that's not what it's like. We don't vacate the premises. No, this is something that we do. We are active in this with God and by His Spirit we set about killing sin. There's a phrase in Latin. I'll not read out the Latin because I'm not sure my Latin pronunciation is very good. Um, I had to do Latin at school. Um, it says that if you want peace, prepare for war. There is no room for pacifism when it comes to sin in our life. We can't be a pacifist when it comes to sin. We have to be so what are we to do today? We're to kill sin. Tomorrow, kill sin. Next Thursday, kill sin. 85 years from now, you're still here, kill sin. Until, from the point of your conversion to when God calls you home, we are to be killing sin. I used to think as a younger Christian, surely bound to get easier as you get older and then a couple of elders in the church were talking to them and they just went son it doesn't get any easier okay sin is sin and you still got to keep killing it every day and I'm seeing a few nodding heads it's what we do but we don't do it on our own okay we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out to be active in this great freedom that we've been given finally freedom affirm. Verse 14 to 17. So the Spirit not only helps us to kill sin, Paul's going to say he bears, the Spirit bears witness to our Spirit affirming our freedom. This is such a comfort to Christians. I just, the book end between verses 1 and verse 17, it's like, no con- not condemn, a judicial statement. But the judge doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, right, you're not condemned anymore, off you go. No, the judge says, you're not condemned anymore, come into my family. You're now adopted. Jesus always, God always goes further than we can ever possibly imagine. Verse 15 says, we did not receive the spirit of slavery and fear, but we receive a spirit of adoption. See, in Roman culture, slaves worked under compulsion. They worked in fear of punishment if they slipped up. They were in fear of not obeying the rules. It was a very insecure position to be in. You were at the absolute beck and call and the, the, you know, the your master could do whatever he liked with you. You were just property. But that is not the position of the Christian. He says, verse 14, all who have the Spirit of God are sons of God. We have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we are not slaves, but we are adopted children. God, hiya. It's like, 
We are adopted children of God, and therefore, we do not fear. That's why he says we don't have a spirit of fear anymore, because we are now the most secure people in the universe, because God has adopted us. Our legal position has changed. We're not condemned, and we're now adopted. So if you ever find yourself doubting who you are, or if you find yourself racked with guilt, listen for the testimony of the Spirit to your spirit, telling you that you are a child of the King, and you therefore can cry out to Him as Father. You don't cry out to Him as Master, you cry out to Him as Father, because you're not a slave. We're adopted. And we are to know and be known by our heavenly Father God and our co-heir, Christ Jesus. But see, Paul specifically refers to us all, as ladies as well, we are all referred as sons. And that's because in Roman culture, only sons could inherit. So we're all sons. In legal terms. So the Spirit not only affirms our present freedom and our present relationship with God, but He also affirms our future freedom. He affirms our future inheritance with Christ as our co-heir. And what do we inherit? Everything. We inherit everything. There is not a square inch of the universe which does not belong to God. And as co-heirs, it's all all of it. We get all of God and we get everything else as co-heirs with Christ. He shares it all with us and we will be glorified. Now, I had said earlier that those who live and know a life of life and peace is not entirely, it's not, or it's not dependent at all on circumstances. And it's true here as well. To, to be free as a Christian in this life is not to be free of suffering. The Bible makes it really clear to us as believers, suffering is the pathway to glorification. That's what it was for Jesus. His path to glory was through the cross. So as it was for him, so it must be for us. The thing is, in, in our modern day, and I don't, maybe it's not been any different in hundreds of years ago, but I think it has changed because our lives are now so comfortable in many ways. Even compared with, say, 100 years ago, 120 years ago. We are rarely exposed to death today. 120, 150 years ago, life expectancy was lower. You'd be, you'd, it would be rare to have grandparents. You probably would have lost a sibling. Today, we are a bit more sheltered, perhaps. So our world seems really surprised when suffering comes along. And today, I think suffering is seen as something to be avoided at all costs. People will sacrifice almost anything, it would seem, to avoid suffering. 
But that's not what the Bible tells the Christian. The Bible tells us, actually, you should expect suffering. Don't be surprised when it comes. We will be, but we can go back to the Bible and then be unsurprised again. But he says, don't be surprised when suffering comes. We're told to expect it, but there is a major difference to how a Christian suffers as to how someone in the world or in the flesh suffers. Because when I suffer or when you suffer, as we will, there is purpose. There's a plan. Our suffering is not just the mindless, random throw of the dice of the universe. Somehow a We've just been unlucky. No, no. God is at work. God is sovereign over every aspect of your life. He orders everything in your life. From what's happening in your cells to your car journey home to what you do tomorrow. And because He is sovereign over your life, it means He is at work by His Spirit transforming us. Everything in our lives that He ordains is to transform us into or can be used to transform us into the likeness of his son nothing is wasted under the sovereignty of god he can use all things and he can work all things for good for those who love him and as we suffer and as we look back sometimes on suffering Sometimes we're fortunate we can look back in suffering and we can actually see, yes, God was using that. I am now more Christ-like because of that event. We don't always get that. You will one day look back and go, oh yeah, yeah, I I see what God was doing. But what it does is it affirms to us that we are his heirs. That we are co heirs with Christ. He's preparing for us a weight of glory which is going to be revealed at one point. If you read on in Romans 8, he goes into this. He calls it future, it's future glory. This, it's going to be revealed, and it's the glory of the children of God. That's us. And creation's waiting for this. It groans waiting for this to happen. But in the meantime, we wait. But we wait not as those who are condemned. We wait as those who have no condemnation. We wait as those who are free. And the challenge for us as Christians is to live out the freedom that we've been given and not to slip back into that old path, but instead to strive to kill sin and to live life in the power of the Spirit which has been given to us by the grace of God. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, you have lavished on us by your Spirit such love and mercy. You have set us free. You've opened our eyes. You've given us new hearts. You have caused us to be born again. By your Spirit, you dwell in us. Father, would you help us to lean on your Spirit, to call on his power, to help us as we strive to live our freedom 
in a way which brings glory to you because it is your power and not our power. Father, we thank you for the confidence we have that we know regardless of our circumstances, our situation, that we are children of God. And we call to you as Father. We can say, Abba. Father, would you bless the people here? Would they know your presence with them? This week and the weeks ahead, would you bless this church? May your spirit be moving in people's lives and drawing them to yourself. May this place be a shining light which points to the wonder of who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.